Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I am joined today by OpenVizConf hero and designer of many other cool things that we're going to talk about, Zan Armstrong. Zan, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Um, and we're in person in D.C. Yes. That is uh, a unique situation here for the show. So I'm glad we get to like actually hang out in person. Very cool. I am too. <laughs> um, so I first saw you a few months ago now at OpenVizConf, did a really interesting talk on seasonality, which I want to get to. Um, but why don't we start by having you maybe introduce yourself uh, for listeners, uh, your background and maybe what you're doing now, and then we'll roll it all together. Sounds good. Um, it's been an interesting journey that makes a lot more sense when I look back on it than running through it in life. Um, but I studied pure math at Williams. Um, I taught high school in rural Maine for a couple of years, a lot of pre-calculus, which has come in really handy in using D3. Um, I lived abroad in Sweden, uh, studied some bioinformatics, didn't know what I was doing with my life, and drove to California, as you do. Um, <laughs> found my way to Google, um, and after a year, I transferred to a team called the Revenue Team, mm -hmm. and spent five years as a data analyst um, trying to understand everything I could about Google's revenue, and uh, lots and lots of time series analysis, lots of forecasting. And that process brought me into visualization. Um, there was a great internal class taught by a woman named Cole who does the storytelling with data website. Sure, sure. Um, and she was actually, at the time, doing internal classes. She was at Google and teaching internal classes on data viz. And I went to one of her classes, blew my mind, um, loved thinking about that psychology of perception and how that influenced how we make visuals. And it just kind of started building that into my own work um, as an analyst and kept getting more and more into it. And finally, I was like, yes, this is the thing. Um, <laughs> and amazingly, had the opportunity to spend six months in Boston working with uh, Fernando Villegas and Martin Wattenberg's team, their, mm -hmm. their DataViz research team. Um, and while I was there, my job was to do something with DataViz that I could bring back to my revenue team that would make a difference for the team. And what I built was a tool to help us identify when Simpson's paradox and mix effects were at play in our data um, to help us understand when we should trust the aggregate um, data and when we should dig in deeper and when there's more of a story. And at the end of that, Martin was like, I think we can publish this. <laughs> uh, and so we did. Um, and since then, I uh, took some time off. That process also showed me how valuable it was to know your tools. And I was really inspired mm -hmm. by their team. I just really wanted to dive in headfirst on JavaScript. I've been mostly an R user before that. Lots of ggplot, which is amazing. But wanted to do the interactives, wanted to make yeah. things um, like that. So dove in headfirst on D3 and JavaScript. Um, did a bunch of projects on my own and started freelancing um, and most recently, I've been doing a bunch of work with Stamen, which has been great. Kind of spring. Great. So let's come back to the Stamen project. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm curious about that. That would be great. Um, when you gave your talk at OpenVizConf, it was about seasonality. <laughs> it was about how people really need to be paying attention to changes over time. Um, can you maybe give us a quick rundown of that talk? And then maybe some concrete examples, because I sort of feel like, yeah, everybody kind of knows what seasonality is. Maybe they don't know what selection biases or omitted variable biases, mm -hmm. but seasonality, maybe they can get their head around maybe a little bit easier. Maybe, and that was part of your talk, I think, why it's kind of intuitive to us. Yeah. So seasonality is just all the rhythms of our hours, our days, our weeks, our years. So um, hour of day or minute of day, day of week, and um, week of year, and then kind of major categories. So those patterns, things that happen, uh, and as well as like holidays and things that happen with that. Um, what happens on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday versus a Saturday, Sunday, for example. I mean, these are things that I like, think they're so fundamental to us and we feel them so strongly that they're super easy to just accept um, in our lives, but overlook in our data. And to think, yeah, it's, of course it's there, but does it really matter? Um, and so the talk was all about looking at situations of why we should pay more attention, why we should look at our data before we aggregate it. 
um, and think about how seasonality matters in data analysis. So things like being careful of months, because you may have some months that have four weekends versus five weekends, and it makes for unfair comparisons if you have a strong day of week effect in your data. Um, or just uh, looking at things at the minute level. I was looking at some birth data. Um, you could see these amazing spikes in the number of babies born at different minutes of the day mm -hmm. um, based on when people were having C-sections and when those were scheduled. I think it's really interesting um, to expose these rhythms, and they often can actually have real-life consequences around. There was a CDC case of looking at tractor accidents um, in the past, and they found that um, a lot of the accidents happen right before lunch and right before dinner. And um, that can actually, looking at that and noticing that hourly data can change recommendations, can change people's behavior, can actually save lives. So it's not just a fun part, but um, can have real life ramifications. Yeah. And I think is also super fun because I think it's a, an amazing way to see these, these patterns of yeah. our lives and of other people's lives. And you talked a little bit about some of the tools, technology, uh, models, I guess, that some agencies use to, to adjust for seasonality. So you talked about the X, X12, X13? Uh, now? X13 now, X13 now? <laughs> X13 um, arima seeds. Yeah. <laughs> so, but for folks who may not be thinking about the sort of BLS X13 model, like what are the basic lowest hanging fruit people should be thinking about when they're trying to adjust for seasonality? I think the, the biggest thing is just actually look at the data. Like, mm -hmm. don't aggregate your data away. See if you, if you have minute data, if you have hour data, take a look at that, put it on a chart. Um, it might feel like there's going to be a lot there because it's so much more data when you start multiplying times 24 <laughs> to yeah, the minutes. Right. Um, but just look at it and see if there's anything there. Um, and the birth data was actually really interesting for this because I first... I like, hadn't gotten the right data set at first, and finally I got the data set and looked at the minutes and was like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I can't believe I hadn't looked at this yet. Yeah. Um, so, so number one is just look at it yeah. um, and, and go to that go to that extra step and um, look at days. Right. Uh, the second is um, year on year growth is a really great tool um, because a lot of, or week on week or whatever you're, if you're looking at years, um, doing year on year growth comparing to the previous period because whatever was happening then is probably what's happening now. So it kind of is a way of taking away seasonality mm -hmm. just by having a, a fair comparison. Right. So you, you mentioned the, the paper you wrote with Martin and Fernanda earlier. And in that paper, you talked about other types of bias, omitted variable bias being mm -hmm. one. Do you get a sense that people kind of grasp seasonality bias or seasonality issues? They can grasp it a little more easily because... That makes sense to us. Like, it's yeah. warm during the the summer and it's cold during the winter. Like, is that... Yeah, definitely. I think with seasonality, it's it's pretty intuitive. Um, the places where I think it's more challenging is when it's not your own seasonality, when it's somebody else's seasonality. Um, so I was a data analyst in California and explaining that explaining that weather really, really mattered if you're on the East Coast or, yeah. or in Dublin or someplace that had much more variable weather than, than California. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where... Even when it's something graspable, just really putting that empathy and, and experience yeah. somebody else's is no, important. No, I, I think that's really interesting to think about how another culture might you know, mm -hmm. work or sleep or you know harvest crops or whatever yeah, it is. That, yeah. that, that's really interesting. And that's actually another part, even if it's in your own country, but it's a different demographic than yeah. yourself. Like yeah. these people that are older or younger or have different circumstances yeah. that they yeah. might have a different seasonality than right. you do. Um, very cool. So I'll put the link to the OpenViz talk on, on the site, but now I want to switch gears um, and talk a little bit more about some of the DataViz projects that you have. Mm -hmm. um, two of particular interest that I think are great um, is the Which is Bigger project, um, in which you let users sort of dynamically compare geographies. And then your Weather Circles project, which uses a spiral graph, basically, that now sort of everyone has seen. <laughs> We've seen a different kind of one of those recently. But, but you had uh, one of the earlier ones on changes in temperature. So can we talk about the Which is Bigger project? Um, maybe explain it first and then, and then talk about you know, why you created it. 
Sure. Um, so which is bigger is uh, about comparing the sizes of countries in a in a map projection where countries are actually equal area. So a lot of the map projections we usually use distort the sizes of countries because um, there's other gains and there's other good reasons for that. Um, but it uses a projection where there's actually equal area. You can play with two little globes, um, moving them around, and then you can see on a on an overlay different countries compared in different parts of the world. Yeah. And you can see how Australia compares to the United States or how Saudi Arabia compares to Greenland. Yeah. Um, and it's just it turned out to just feel really lightweight and fun and playful. Yeah. Um, way of kind of exploring our world. And there's a number of presets, the things that I found that I thought were interesting as a kind of a giving a starting point. Yeah, there's like 12 like certain like compare these two continents or these two countries yeah. to each other. It's really it's really interesting. I'm, I'm curious that the D3 site, uh, Mike Bostock's site, has a whole bunch of stuff on map projections. Yes. So do, are you one of those people who's like has strong feelings on map projections and gets like deep into the weeds? I, I love map projections. <laughs> I don't have strong feelings on like this is the right one. Right, I right. have... It's like all of data viz, where it's like the right tool for the right yeah, question. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do love the concept that there are all these different ways, and, and I think it's a really, I think actually cartography really exemplifies some. Has been long struggling with a lot of things that we struggle with in data viz more generally around. There isn't one right answer. There's not one perfect map projection. It totally depends what you're doing and and why, um, and which projection you choose. And for this project, I chose one that had equal area because that was fundamental to the to what the project was about. Right. Yeah, it was a great, um, it, it, there's other downsides. If you zoom really far out, it's actually the same projection that the UN uses mm -hmm. because it's, for the UN, it makes sense that they use an equal area projection so that you don't overemphasize certain countries. Right. So their logo actually uses that same projection, same like projection. all the way oh, zoomed out. Yeah. And I was doing a more zoomed in version because I didn't want to have as much distortion yeah. of the country shape because even though the area is maintained, the shapes are actually oh, distorted a little okay. bit. Okay. All right. I'll think about that. <laughs> so, and try to, so, yeah. yes, projections are awesome. <laughs> projections are awesome. Okay. <laughs> Tip of the day, projections are awesome. Um, okay, so that's a super fun project. And then weather circles. Mm -hmm. So um, recently there was a similar sort of spiral graph that, you know, got all this play on Twitter um, by Ed Hawkins that was on global climate change. Mm -hmm. But yours is a little is a little more drill down, a little mm -hmm. more specific. So can you talk about uh, talk about that project a little bit? Sure. So this project actually came out of me losing a bet um, and being convinced that maybe I hadn't really lost the bet. Uh, so I mistakenly made the bet that it was hotter in January than it was in June in San Francisco. And I think my perception of this was actually in comparison because it's fairly warm compared to everywhere else in January and it's fairly cold in June. Um, and I, I bet my fiance this and he was like, no way, you're totally wrong. Turns out I was totally wrong. Um, but I was like, well, maybe. So I looked at the data on WeatherSpark and was like, yep, I'm wrong. But I was like, well, maybe it's about different. Maybe it's about hour of day. Like maybe at like the hours when I'm perceiving the temperature, I'm right. Like maybe at like noon or 5 p.m. or something. So I like got hourly data from NOAA mm -hmm. and started graphing it. And I'm still wrong. <laughs> um, but the good news is uh, it sparked a really interesting visualization because I started playing with it. I was like, this is really interesting. And it's not just weather. It's also cloud cover. So in the visualization, um, you can see, you can choose different cities and you can look at one of five different weather metrics, so temperature or um, cloud cover, and it's radial. Um, and you can actually animate and see it grow and it's hour of day um, around the circle um, and the day of year for the 365 days of the year. Mm -hmm. And it's the most typical weather over the last 30 years. Right. So it kind of gave a different way of experiencing it and you can both experience things that are familiar to you. People in San Diego love seeing the June gloom in the cloudy data. 
which June, I didn't June even know. June in San Diego. I mean, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, people from the East Coast really enjoy appreciating their cold winters uh-huh, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> showing yeah, yeah. those off. <laughs> um, but it gives that way of both seeing what's familiar to you and seeing other cities that you aren't as familiar with. So, did the Weather Circles project inspire the seasonality analysis, or vice versa, or were you doing them simultaneously? So, seasonality, both the seasonality and the Simpsons paradox research, both of those came out of um, things that I faced a lot doing forecasting analysis. Yeah, okay, at Google. Um, at Google. Okay. Um, okay. And so it's basically, if you take those two talks together and you listen to both of them, you've learned everything I learned in five years. Okay. <laughs> Cram crap. Sorry. Exactly. Cool, 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 cool. Um, and, and I think since then, I've had a fascination with, with weather and thinking about seasonality, but mm-hmm. it was just a different way of playing with yeah. playing with those themes. and um, Yeah, just a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> so are you really into weather? I mean, there have been a couple of really cool visualizations over the last, say, year. I don't really know. A lot of uh, really nice ones about... Uh, global climate change. Uh, Bloomberg did one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little more on scrolly telling, and I know you have some thoughts on scrolly telling. So maybe I'll give you an opportunity to <laughs> to talk. And you know, Jim Vallandigham, who's been on the show before, he can listen with interest to what you're about to say. So, um, actually, so yeah, I love when we started talking about um, some of the climate change stuff. I, one of my favorite visualizations of of recent years is the. Uh, Eric and Blackie on Bloomberg did this great visualization on what's causing climate change. Um, and one of the things I actually love about that is they show the things that aren't, not just the things that are. So I think we get so used to seeing graphs of like, okay, sure, sure, sure. Like that line matches that line. We're good to go. Yeah. Um, and I think what made that so compelling is um, the way they told the story and how they showed all the things that could be related, could be causing it. Um, when you look at the charts, you're like, yeah, that's not it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and just, I think it was really a really interesting concept and amazingly well executed. Yeah. So for those who haven't seen it, let's let's describe it quickly. Yes. So we've got timeline. Yes. Horizontal. We're going from some year, like 1900, maybe so before maybe that. I think, yeah, I can't remember if it was 1900, 1950. Okay, so we're starting oh, there. The we're in the past <laughs> and to today. And um, we have uh, global temperatures, sort of like the fixed static line that sits there. And then as you scroll vertically, mm-hmm. um, all these different elements sort of pop up on, on top. So you've got volcanoes and you've got other things that now I don't know. Sun, remember. I think. Sun was one Right, of right, yeah. <laughs> like, um, and so there are a couple of things that are interesting about it. For me, one was that they show sort of the confidence interval, mm-hmm. which yes. is great. And two is the animation mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting, that it's not just a line chart with five different lines on it. It actually animates across. And so there's this sort of tracking as your eye looks across mm-hmm. the across the screen but and then it has this vertical scroll as you go through yeah. and it sort of adds so so how do you what's your feelings on so scrolly telling like everybody has strong feelings so i'm curious how you feel about scrolly telling. So, so my feeling i think comes back to almost the same thing i said for projections i just i just wrote a blog post about this having been inspired by a bunch of the conversations um people have been having recently and i think for me it's not it's not about scrolly telling versus steppers mm-hmm. it being one is like the best it's yeah. more about finding the right tool for what you're doing um and i think in that case they use, they actually have a little bit of kind of a stepper feel on the right that you can kind of see where you are. And one of the things about steppers is they provide nice context, potentially. Um, but the scrolling makes for this very kind of like seamless experience. So you don't have to make a decision of do I go on, you just kind of keep going on right. the way we do when we're reading. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a really excellent execution. And yeah, yeah in general, I think um, you can you can read my blog posts to find out more of my specifics. But it's a lot about, I think, just understanding the potential strengths and weaknesses of, of one version or another what you're going for, what's the right story, um, what's the right tool for what you're doing. Right. Um, and also that there's a bunch of actual examples out there in the wild that combine elements, like this one does actually, where it has some of that stepper mm-hmm. context while also being a scrolling well, scrolling, experience. right. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see how people are going to fight you on that one, but okay. Yep. <laughs> um, 
So you and, mentioned and execution is great too. That was just inc- like yeah when they feel really smooth. Yeah, it felt really smooth difference. and it felt really natural to sort yeah. of see these things build. And the other thing that I really liked about it is that it's building a fairly what I would suppose is a fairly sophisticated model underlying mm-hmm. it, and it's sort of just adding these components together. So mm-hmm. A plus B plus C plus D equals mm-hmm. this thing um, in a very visual and, and natural, as you said, natural natural way to interact with it. And I love, I think also, I think one of the interesting things with scrolling is that it means that the animation or the transition is actually part of the content. It's not just a way to get from here to yeah. there. And I think as you point out, like part of what makes that makes that magical is the animation. Like it's, yeah. it is content because it's showing you that build. That build, yeah. That. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, you mentioned at the beginning that you're doing some work with Stamen. Yes. And I know you have a bunch of other projects going on. So can we talk a little bit about what you're working on right now? You've been, now you, you left Google how many I was years Googled ago? two years ago. Two years ago. Okay, so now you're you're on your own doing all these uh, very cool projects. So can you yes. talk a little bit about what you're up to for the summer? Yeah, I've been having a lot of fun working both uh, with Stamen on a genetics based project and actually with one um, on my own with some Yale researchers. Um, and uh, really interesting to do things that are tool based for scientists. So kind mm-hmm. of getting back to the analysis side of um, of building tools, and it's a really different process to build a tool that people are going to use in different ways um, than to build a story or ex- experiential um, yeah. experience. Um, so it's fun getting to play with both of those. <laughs> um, and we did one pretty recently, uh, Atlas of Emotions was also a statement project that was commissioned by the Dalai Lama and um, was uh, the client was Paul Ekman, working with Paul Ekman, uh, who also was the consultant for Pixar's Inside Out. Okay. Um, and it was interesting thinking about this completely different project of yeah. how do you give a sense of emotion and yeah how to think about emotions and a way to explore that right um from a from a web visualization context yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so were you attracted to work with stamen because of their work with maps i mean is it a, is it a mapping based project or can you just maybe sure. if you can if you can describe the project the tool for researchers is it a mapping based project this one is not a mapping based project so stamen's been getting more into data visualization mm-hmm. um over the years, yeah. um, coming out of that great like cartography experience. Yeah. Um, and this project is um, really a matrix at the end of the day, comparing organisms to possible uh, genes and metabolic pathways that they have. Okay. Um, and it's, it's about you take a sample um, of dirt or something, you sequence everything in it, and then you try to figure out what's there. Oh, interesting. Um, and so it's helping, it's a tool for researchers to uh, look at those organism categorizations and then the types of genes and enzymes that are that are have been categorized um, and try to understand what do these organisms do what can they do can they do everything they need to do if they can't what other organism might be doing it yeah. is there some kind of symbiotic relationship right. and like, a lot of this is happening and like the, the researcher we're working at loves to talk about uh, dolphins teeth are evidently have amazing ecosystems in dolphins <laughs> teeth they don't brush their teeth and they've got whole ecosystems in there <laughs> <laughs> okay um so how does that play with the yale researchers is that is that all together uh, or these is are it actually separate, separate? so the okay. yale, yale researchers were some friends of mine and that's a um, neuroscience based okay. uh they're looking at um genes that express in your in your brain and one of the really exciting things is they actually have a lot of quantitative information in a field where they often have very qualitative information. Mm-hmm. Um, this set of labs, this consortium, has really good qual- quantitative information about genes and what cell they're in. Um, and that cell type is actually pretty unique, too. So we're looking at um, giving a way of looking up uh, and exploring this data that really takes advantage of the fact that it's quantitative and that they have cell-based, cell type-based wow. information. Interesting. So some pretty um, hardcore science-type yeah. visualization yeah. work, which is really interesting. <laughs> 
Um, very good. Well, um, thanks for coming on the show. This has been really interesting. Some really great projects you have worked on and are working on. It's great. I did. I actually had one more thing. Yeah, well, okay. Let's do it. <laughs> um, when you talked, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, things that might be less types of things that happen in data that might be like seasonality. We can get it, but there might be things that are a little bit like less intuitive. Yeah. I just want to give a quick shout out for. Um, Amelia McNamara did a great talk at OpenVizConf on do you know nothing when you see it? Mm -hmm. um, and then Jessica Hallman did the visual uncertainty experience. And I think both of those play with really interesting ideas around what you actually see in data and if it's really there. Um, and, and how do we think about uncertainty? We know uncertainty matters, like we know stats and all of that, yeah. but it's, it's different. Like when you see a bar chart, it feels so concrete. So how right. can we actually experience right. the uncertainty? Um, and then last, just I think, when data is missing is super interesting. And um, like the data that you don't have, because we're so focused on the data that we do have and the story that's in there, but often the story is, well, what data didn't we actually get to collect? Mm -hmm. um, and Seth Stevens, David Owitz, mm -hmm. um, did an amazing article on uh, how Googling unmasks child abuse, um, where there was actually a lot of data about child abuse that was missing during the recession. Um, because the agencies that collected the child abuse reports got defunded, and so right. there wasn't an opportunity. Um, so just a couple extra things about, like, I love thinking about when we might be misinterpreting something. And yeah. those are three examples that yeah. are super fascinating. Oh, really good. And I don't want to close up yet because you just, like, open the box. <laughs> but I want to ask uh, one more question then because you mentioned, obviously, a lot of things about uncertainty. And I'm curious whether you think some of the debate about how we visually represent uncertainty is an issue with data visualization or if it's an issue with people's basic ability or inability to understand what uncertainty is. Yeah, I think that, I think. Um, and I know that's a big, that's a big, that's a big question. question. <laughs> but you know, you hear all the time yeah. like, "Oh, box and whisker plots aren't very good because people don't understand what they mean." And I always wonder, well, is that the chart type's fault, or do people not understand what a percentile is? And I tend to lean towards that. Yeah, side. I think I actually think that it is. It is a lot about the not that we don't fully understand the concepts because they're not as intuitive. Yeah. I think for a scientist who or a statistician who's grounded in this all the time. Um, I think it's a great representation because they know what it's representing. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's because then the question is like, who is your audience and like who are you representing this for and why like do they know? And I mean, I think it's, it's an abstract like they're all abstractions. So do yeah. you know what the mark means? Like you could debate in mathematics like how do we like is is the multiplication sign really good or is a square root sign a good? <laughs> yeah, Does square yeah. root really tell you about square root? Right. Yeah. And yeah. It means something different to somebody who's like knows what a square root is versus somebody that might be introducing experiencing square root for the first time. Yeah. And if you know what a square root is, like maybe it's not the perfect signal, but it's it tells you exactly what you need to know. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're trying to get like the experience of a square root, maybe it doesn't doesn't give that. Yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, it always comes back to the audience, I guess. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, very good. Well, uh, great. There's a lot of stuff for people to go through, and I hope they will. Um, some great projects uh, and the great talk, of course, at OpenViz. Um, so, uh, Zan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I really was happy to be here. Great to talk with you. And thanks to everyone for tuning in and listening to this week's episode. If you have any questions or comments, please let me know. So until next time, this has been the Policy of His Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.